As the 2020 season comes to a close, many farmers will be looking at how they can put capital to work in the coming years. What's the latest on ag land values and their potential for investment? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Despite a rocky commodity market in the last several years, staple land prices have been a bright spot in the farm economy. DTN's Vicki Myers has spent years building the expertise on why that is and joins us today to discuss why Agland is currently a seller's market how the ongoing pandemic and urban flight is affecting land investments, and how even technology might be a factor in how land is valued now and how its value might continue to shift in the future. Vicki will bring us up to date on all the latest right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by the 2020 DTN Ag Summit. The DTN Ag Summit is an annual opportunity for farmers to learn, network, and refresh as they prepare for the year ahead. And this year, it will be even easier to attend, virtually, right from your home or office. With the theme of Farm Strong, Strategies to Build Resilience, the DTN and Progressive Farmer editors have packed the agenda with content to help you thrive, including enlightening sessions on leadership and building trust, the outlook for the global agricultural economy and trade, and the latest on on on-farm technology. With breakout sessions on employee management, taxes, and more, You'll walk away with knowledge you need to farm strong. And make sure to join us for our popular breakfast roundtables. Just grab a cup of coffee and join other farmers from across the country in discussing today's timely topics. To register and learn more, visit dtnagsummit.com. And now, back to the show. DTN senior editor Vicki Myers has been following trends in ag land values, not just in 2020, but for the last several years. Vicky, I wonder if you can just start off by talking uh, a bit about why um, why this was a relevant story to talk about now. Well, this is a story uh, we we look at annually uh, and and several times throughout the year in smaller pieces at what's happening with regards to agricultural land markets, and we also uh, look at the recreational land market as part of that uh, because for many farmers. Uh, they have a good bit of recreational property as well as cropland and pasture land and timberland. So this is something that uh, I've been doing for over 10 years. And it's been very interesting to me over that amount of time, how well uh, agricultural land prices hold up. It, it seems to be that irregardless of what's going on with the rest of the economy, the agricultural land market uh, just seems to hang in there. So it's it's been pretty impressive over the last decade. Um, and I really anticipate that we're not going to see a whole lot of uh, decline, if any, 
in prices over the next 12 months. Uh, to the contrary, it looks like things are more to the upside. You point to a number of, of kind of interesting phenomenon that's that's influencing that potential rise. Um, and one of them is the recreational land market. Could you talk a little bit more about what's happening on that side of this equation? Sure. Uh, the recreational land market is really interesting this year. Uh, often it's just barely a, a blip uh, on our radar, uh, but this year, and I think it's really tied into the COVID uh, situation, and we've seen a lot of uh, unrest in a lot of the urban areas, and people who have the financial ability are looking for places outside of, of town. They're looking for retreats. They may not intend to live there 24 seven, um, but they want a place to go if things get rough. I think they want a place where they can hunt, where they can uh, have a garden, where they can feel a little more independent and away from uh, all of, all of the, the political forces right now that our country's facing. And I was so interested to see that, you know, even when some of, in some of these cases, when it was, there were multiple buyers, you noted that, um, you know, these weren't like real estate investment trusts or, or international buyers. These are just kind of groups of people who are interested in, in kind of a lot more, a luxury purchase or a more emotional purchase. Um, yeah, I don't know. Were you surprised by any of the, the kind of findings related to what's driving land prices right now? Uh, actually, no, not really. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, um, I follow it pretty well, so nothing was a big surprise. We see that interest rates uh, continue to be closely tied to what happens in the agricultural land market. And uh, so that's no surprise. I do believe that if we see interest rates begin to climb, we'll see prices uh, begin to come down a little bit. Uh, that's just the way it always has been. There's always been this tie. There's also the volatility in the stock market um, land is a lot less volatile. And uh, so if you're watching your investments, you know, go, go up and down uh, every day, uh, the, the way they have been the last several uh, months, you know, it's not so bad to find an investment where it's, it's pretty steady that you can get a 3% return, uh, especially if you're, if you're leasing out that land. So that's, that's, that's one reason that agricultural land market has always been very attractive and continues to be during these times. I think we're also kind of adjacent to this, maybe not for the bigger um, crop and, and pasture land that I want to talk about in a minute, but even for these small parcels, we're seeing kind of pretty high values, maybe related to people wanting to not just, you know, driven by unrest, but also just by, you know, kind of COVID and everything that's happening there. Um, do you expect that there's a possibility that that could you know, as the situation around COVID changes, would you expect those land values to change at all? Or do you think those will be pretty consistent? I don't think that they'll go down. Uh, you know, I, I think that COVID has done nothing but, but driven people to do something they've always wanted to do. And, and they looked at the situation and, and they'd always wanted that 20 acres out in the country and interest rates are, are incredibly low. And so, um, you know, they, they went ahead and, and made the move right now. I mean, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive when you look at unemployment and, and things like that, but there are a lot of people who have assets and 
uh, even even with the country facing some challenges right now, uh, for many of them, this is a good time to tap into those assets and and put them in uh, something like land, which is not going to go anywhere, um, and and will bring them some benefits for the years to come. And in terms of an increase in value, and and perhaps just also that personal fulfillment of uh, of having accomplished something or done something that they they'd always dreamed of. So I, I just think it it sort of propelled people to move. Uh, and do something that they want it to do anyway. Um, I, I don't think that there's a lot of panic buying or anything like that that you will see go away the minute there's a, a, a viable vaccine for COVID. I, I, I think this is a longer term trend. I really do. Um, switching over to kind of the more traditional, you know, crop and pasture land, you talked about two big um, factors that are, are kind of driving some of those values. And I think um, one of them was kind of livestock operations and just how rich some of these soils that are coming available are. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the relationship, not just to what, you know, j just to like land being available, but also that this land is like really high quality. It's good stuff. Uh, yeah, we talked about the importance of quality of soils with all of the analysts, and, and that continues to be a strong factor in what people are paying for agricultural land. Um, you know, it was just an interesting aside that Iowa's Dennis Raymond noted that there are several counties in Iowa that have uh, strong livestock production, and they have fared especially well over the last 10 years when it comes to uh, land values. And part of it has just been that you have years and years, I think he said a hundred years worth of, of cattle manure going on to much of that farmland. And it's just incredibly rich soil. And even compared with the same soil types in a Northwestern County, these soils have been so fortified over the years. They're like a super soil and they produce very consistent crops. Um, so there's a lot of competition for that land. So sometimes when you see per acre prices, you know, over that $10,000 mark, uh, you know, you might want to ask why. And in some cases, it's because these are in areas where people know that soil has been fortified for so many years uh, that it's, it's really going to give them consistent yields. Well, and the other element that he talked about was was technology and the way technology is kind of changing both calculations and kind of land productivity. Um, I don't think that that kind of part of this equation is as obvious. Could you talk a little bit about what how technology plays into this equation? Sure. You know, this was the first time I'd ever had anybody bring technology up as uh, as a factor in land prices. So I found that very interesting. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it because technology has basically allowed farmers all across the country uh, to, to be more precise in, in their planning and in their management so that those areas that are not being very productive, they may uh, improve them or they may leave them out uh, entirely. Um, I think that Dennis Raymond specifically talked about uh, yield monitors when they first came out, uh, you know, 25 years ago. He, he said that he believed at that time that a lot of drainage tile would be sold in Iowa as a result of that because people could actually see real data that allowed them to quantify losses where drainage was an issue for them. And so, 
he said it became very common to see large tiling projects. Um, you know, people would buy 160 acres and, and grid tile it all right, right off the bat. And, and that's costly. But even though it was a substantial investment, they could see the return because yield monitors gave them that data. And we've really only moved forward from there. I mean, it's incredible the sort of innovation that is going on in the fields right now. I mean, not only is there technology, but there's their genetic improvements. Uh, you know, so we're no longer at a point where, say, a 200 bushel yield of corn is a great thing. I mean, that's that's just sort of uh, blasé right now. Yeah, it's so many changes, especially in the Midwest. Um, tiling is such an interesting topic, but I want to switch gears a little bit to a part of the country where rather than getting water off the field, the question is how to keep it, how to keep water where it is. Um, and I, you talked um, with some folks in the Southeast about how, you know, how important that those that irrigated cropland is or having water uh, connected to the property is. How is that affecting land prices right now? Yeah, that was very interesting because we don't usually think of the Southeast as being an area where, you know, you're that concerned about uh, having water. Uh, some of the soils across the South uh, do have to be uh, watered or rained on pretty frequently. They, they can dry out very, very fast. And, um, you know, Gene Cook, who, who's a real veteran of the land market, talked about um, down in Southwestern Georgia, uh, there have been some real limitations on the ability um, to, to irrigate across 16 different counties. Farmers are not allowed to put in new irrigation wells to add farm acres, and the Department of Natural Resources is enforcing that, and the governor actually issued an executive order uh, telling the DNR to check permitted acres for irrigation against what's actually in the field and to force compliance. Uh, when you don't have water in that part of Georgia, um, you know, you really do see lower land values and there's not a whole lot you can do in terms of agriculture with that. So I thought that was very interesting because it's certainly not a region that we think about uh, when it comes to water issues. I, w I just have a couple of last questions and, and one of them is related to, you know, cropland versus pasture land. It's, we've seen, um, Backtracking a little bit to what Dennis said in Iowa, you know, we've seen a saw a much sharper rise in cropland versus pasture land value, um, but both have been pretty stable for and and pretty kind of parallel for um, the last four or five years. Do you think that'll? Do you expect that'll stay pretty consistent in terms of you know you don't see any significant rise in likely rise in pasture versus cropland or vice versa? No, uh, the, the two have tended to parallel uh, one another. At times, if you look at it on a percentage basis, uh, pasture may increase a little more um, than, than cropland from one year to the next. But they, you know, the interesting thing, people try to divide farmers into uh, you're a row crop farmer, you're a corn farmer, you're a soybean farmer. Uh, you're in the Midwest, you're in the South, or you're a cattle producer. Uh, you know, in, in many, many cases, uh, operations are diverse. They're, they're not necessarily one thing or the other. Um, a lot of those Midwestern corn and soybean guys, uh, they've got a, a small feedlot or they've got uh, their own cow-calf herd. So, you know, we, we want to divide everybody up and that's really uh, not reality. 
the reality is that people have mixed types of land and, uh, and, the, and the land as a whole, when we say agricultural land, the land as a whole, you know, tends to move as a whole. And so while pasture land is generally set at a lower value per acre, uh, the, the trend uh, in terms of it climbing or falling uh, usually parallels what's going on in the more traditional row crop uh, acreage. You know, just to kind of bring this all back around to, to kind of a little bit where we started, you know, all of that taken into account um, and, and just where we see, you know, farmland prices holding steady and maybe even taking up a little bit. Um, you have a great quote in here from Scott Steffes who says, you know, in agricultural markets, the predominant buyer is still a farmer. Is any significant changes in that, you know, as we see people, you know, buying farmland for recreational purposes, for wanting to, to get away from more urban areas? Um, do you still see, you know, especially given that we've had a tough couple of years in, in agriculture, maybe, um, uh, do you still expect farmers to be the, the kind of primary uh, buyers of farmland in the coming years? I really do. Um, I think that that's, that's something that um, it could change. It could change if you saw um, shifts in, in estate uh, tax programs and things like that, um, certainly. Because if you, if you create a situation where the next generation can't afford to take on the farm because the inheritance taxes are extremely high, then you kind of open the door, I think, to, uh, to, to more groups coming in and actually making that farmland more corporate instead of the family farms that we all say that we want. Uh, but, but by and far, uh, farmland continues to be purchased by farmers. Um, many farmers uh, have got the, uh, the financial means to buy that outright. They are not financing it. Uh, they, have, they have held on to, um, to money and to equity, waiting until certain parcels become available that they're particularly interested in. Um, and, and that's where you see the highest prices are auctions where you have neighbor bidding against neighbor. And, and sometimes it gets a little out of hand, but uh, they, they've, they've both had their eye on, on this 50 acres or this 100 acres. Uh, it, it would be logistically a, a good thing to add to their operation. And so they're willing to pay a little more for it. Uh, it's not always about uh, what land will cash flow. There are so many more elements that go into the whole land picture. Um, there's the emotional element uh, as well as that cash flow element. And so you have to look at it as, as a whole picture and not just uh, a lot of numbers on a spreadsheet. Absolutely. And my final question is just, you know, in looking ahead to the next 12 months, assuming that, or, or you know, with all the indicators saying that, this this uh, these values will stay pretty stable, if not, you know, grow a little bit. What does that mean for for farmers' bottom lines, and as farmers, you know, plan for this for the year ahead? Especially thinking that you know a lot of other things might not be quite so certain as land values are. Well, I just think that basically it it gives them um, a footing, uh, you know, by by eliminating a lot of volatility in the land market. 
you do create uh, a, a good footing for people. And so that's one element that you're not going to be that worried about over the next 12 months. Things can change, but I, I really think that, um, you know, irregardless of who goes into the White House, uh, when we're having this conversation, that has not been uh, decided. And, and even if interest rates go up slightly, which all the indications are that that's probably not going to happen. Um, I, I really think that the next 12 months land values are going to be steady. I, I wouldn't look for a lot of upturn. Um, I mean, there's possible possibility of some upturn, but uh, I think overall steady. And, um, and then we'll have to see what the next 12 months brings, which will tied to policy and 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 whatever happens so um you know we're just all kind of waiting to see and and we'll go from there you can read vicky's full story seller's market in the november issue of dtn progressive farmer and look out for another story in the december issue with even more news on land values keep up with this and other reporting from vicky at dtnpf.com this episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Vicki Myers. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode is brought to you by DTN Haytimer. Hay and forage quality isn't just about yield. It also relies on the perfect weather window to ensure a good crop. Use DTN Hay Timer, part of MyDTN, to quickly assess risk by viewing maps specifically designed to show circumstances affecting hay quality. Pennsylvania producer David Graybill said, quote, other weather forecasts were not accurate enough. As DTN Hay Timer shows, it takes the right combination of drying to preserve the crop. I would guess we lost three to four times the value in crops that it would cost us to keep our DTN subscription for the year. DTN Haytimer is part of the MyDTN platform. Visit MyDTN.com to start a free 14-day trial.